I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Zadie Smith is a writer who matters. 20 years now after White Teeth, her breakthrough novel, when she was just out of college, her new one is titled The Fraud, fiction that pops in and out of two centuries, can feel very Victorian, and it can feel very 2023. Frauds, trials, disbelief abounding. Welcome back, Sadie Smith. I think of you now as the current title holder in the glorious old lineage of English and American fiction. I feel you looking both forward and backward and sideways in this new novel about your professional family over the generations, your literary ancestors, and your cousins in the game today. It can feel confessional at one moment, comical the next, stone serious before you're done. Founders of the Victorian novel turn up in the fraud, Thackeray, Dickens, George Eliot. At the same time, you're addressing the extended family of readers and writers today. How in the world does it feel to have that all in your head, very nearly in your blood? It was It was an amazing experience. Yeah, it was. It, I agree with you. It's partly a professional lineage or a vocational lineage, but there's also, you know, actual family. Like I, I really wanted to know who the English were and who the Jamaicans were. So it, it felt quite personal, yeah, all the way through. Were you meaning to let the rest of us in on some family secrets about what novelists think of each other? I, I can't believe their secrets. <laughs> but even their doubts about the element of fraud in the craft of storytelling, their reflections on it. Yeah, I mean, I, that just seems so conventional to me that Novelists have this quite strong sense of fraudulence. But I think partly it's because the act of it is so overvalued in the culture or in Anglo-American culture that if you're on the inside and you know what novel writing is, it can feel strange that people celebrate something that is so Hmm. um, pathological, I was going to say. Yeah. There are several plots threaded through this book. Among them, the talk of London in the 1870s about a wild imposter who came back in the name of a dead man to claim a huge fortune in England and its sugar colony, Jamaica. He won a fervent popular following that has to remind any reader of Donald Trump, but he's just a hook for your daring imagination. It's a chance to compose your own historical novel, finally, and to give Charles Dickens a speaking part in it, and to let us in, finally, on the most unexpected birth of a writer, this Eliza Touche, has what we call the disapproval gene, (laughs) tough-minded, jaundiced in many directions, but she wants to learn the secret of novel writing from her cousin, who writes endlessly, but not very well. She's got a code phrase for the lessons she's picking up, nix my doll pals fake away, translated as keep stealing, my friends, from life for fiction and from fiction for life. You have her saying, what a terrible business. At least William, her cousin, did it clumsily with benign incompetence, where his friend Charles Dickens had done it like a master, like an actor. That was precisely, she thinks, what was so dangerous about him. What was the danger? I mean, in Dickens' case, I think it's a danger that, I mean, there are different kinds of novelists, but his kind of novelist is one who controls everything. You know, he's telling a story with many characters and... There's an element of the puppeteer. Yeah. And I think when you read books about his life, particularly in relation to his children, he really had that novelist instinct, which is, I think, the opposite of a good parent, where you have kids and you think, that one's the smart one, that one's the pretty one, that one should be a lawyer, that one should be a doctor. He really thought of them that way as <laughs> characters. And when they didn't follow the script, 
he would become very annoyed and sometimes try and get rid of them. Like he sent one to Australia, basically, because he wasn't exactly as he thought he was going to be. And that, Mr. McCarver went to Australia. Yeah, that instinct for, for control, I suppose, and also for making everything into a story when some things aren't stories. You know, some things are structural. They're not about intimate people's lives. So those are the kind of follies that novelists can fall into. Untangle the links between you and Charles Dickens. I mean, you've been tagged as a writer of hysterical realism. Right. And you might have learned it from him. Hysterical meaning fiction overstuffed with magnetic characters with... Odd names, funny names, relentless yeah. action, emotion. I have mixed feelings about it. Like I love his ability to draw characters quickly and so distinctly. And I like that about my writing too. I really like it. I especially like it when I'm reading novels in which I feel like nobody lives for a second. Then I'm so grateful to have an ability to make people live a little. But I also think, you know, it, it can be taken a little too far. And there's something about, particularly I guess comic characters, that as you get older, your sympathies widen more and it's harder to see everybody as Macorbers, yeah. Eliza didn't like the fact that Dickens, or she said she didn't like the fact that Dickens was always tuned to the street, not just in London, listening for lines that would work on paper, which made him a vampire for her. But that's pretty ordinary. It's what called having a good ear. Right. But then later she's still thinking, quoting you, God preserve me from novel writing. God preserve me from that tragic indulgence, that useless vanity, that blindness. Well, she's a moralist, you know, Eliza. She has a lot of opinions about a lot of people. I don't say they're necessarily correct. But yeah, she she feels like it's, you know, in the same realm as sitting around in your armchair talking about the situation in Jamaica, that it's just talk and no action. I guess that's how she thinks about novels. Yeah, And she has a dream of writing a different kind of novel for sure. Yeah, and then comes this marvelous passage of ecstasy in this same Eliza. She's embarked on becoming a writer herself. She's going to cover the Tickborn trial and interview people. And you write, on the train, she could barely control herself. She had known the giddiness of love and febrile sensations of hate and fear, but this feeling was different. It was an excitement of the blood that was yet under the total control of her mind, was this what the admirable George Eliot felt as she worked? What Thackeray and Dickens had known all these years? What Zadie Smith knows? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a fair description of it when it's going well, I'd say. It's, it's really very, very enjoyable <laughs> when it's going well. Um, <laughs> Tell us. Well, it's exactly that, that, that you get to feel a lot of things, but in a kind of controlled environment. And I, I guess that's exciting for a certain kind of person but I imagine for lots of other people that would be incredibly boring some people want to jump off bungee ropes you know some people want to experience things with no borders and with no control and that's exactly the thrill so it's a very particular kind of enjoyment I'm sure and you must have had it as a child what were the passages in this book in which you felt that you know excitement in the blood under the control of the mind to be honest there was no um labor in this book there were no um dull moments for me, really. Wow. Not really. It was all always a pleasure. Every part of it was a pleasure because um, I could just see it all. It's the first time that's ever happened to me. I don't, I don't know if that's true for the reader, but for me, they were all as real as people in front of me. Yeah, so it was a real joy. Even when it gets very, very serious, I'm thinking what you know about this ghastly time we're living through. You've made parallels other places. You said in an essay, we live on top of a monstrosity now. The environmental crisis 
is the perfect analogy to 19th century attitudes towards slavery. Guilt, shame, all of it. Yes. And we see the deadly ruin of it and do almost nothing about it. Yeah, so maybe also the feeling of being um, overwhelmed by something too large to deal with. I, I understand that emotion that people have, particularly in relation to the environment. I have it all the time. But writing this book, I really saw the kind of political utility of of taking a corner of the situation and dealing with it as best you can, and that, that is something worth doing, and that that done en masse is an important intervention. Mm. But it's really defeating. I mean, when you're thinking about that system of racialized capital, that slavery, it's hard to underestimate at its peak how much money it was making. Yeah, It's really... Um, something extraordinary and there are histories you know even dealing with the american war of independence that make the point that that was really about the money in the caribbean too like it's all about the money in the caribbean there was just so much money being made not for very long but in that 100 year pocket in the kind of 17th 18th century fortunes were being made the way they're being made in silicon valley right now like unprecedented in human history yeah. so when something's that big and when so many people profit it really takes a monumental effort on the part of thousands, maybe millions of people to end it. And that to me is quite a hopeful thought, you know, instead of waiting for a single hero. Like, I, of course, without Frederick Douglass, without these kind of unique figures, it's hard to imagine anything. But but he wasn't alone, is what I mean. We'll come back to the question of what the writer's responsibility is in all this. But speaking of your creation, Eliza, she wants to imagine writing as the gateway to our deepest selves, but she sees fraud and manipulation, jealousy, the stealing of credit among these 19th century writers all around her in literary society. And she comes to raise the question that all of us confront sooner or later. What if the world knows, and we all of us suspect that deep down, we're frauds? I would move, and it's just something to me personally, I would move politics out of the realm of personal sentiment. Like to me, those concerns about authenticity, about individuals, is something from Christian gospel, which is perfectly legitimate when you're thinking about the Christian gospel, but it's not very useful for politics. It's not necessary that people be pure of heart all the way down, do you know what I mean? Or to act perfectly. It's only necessary to create structures which allow people to be as good as they can be and to be kind to others. That's what governments are for. That's what social arrangements are for. Not everybody has to be Jesus Christ. That's not what politics is about. Politics is about making situations that enable people to deal justly with each other. One of your central tests of the Victorian novelists, looking back, J.D. Smith, is how aware those 19th century giants, Dickens included, how well they understood and addressed the barbaric cruelty of the British Empire, East and West, and very particularly in the slave sugar colonies like Jamaica. And you've told us some stuff that, I can't say it was brand new to me, but the Morant Bay, for example, that right. very, very few people have ever heard right. of it. An uprising led by preachers, Jamaica, 1865, protesting poverty and oppression. The British governor declared martial law and his troops slaughtered 400 helpless Jamaicans. Right. became a very big deal in London at the time. Politicians had to sort of declare themselves on what should be done about the governor. How did the novelists, the great novelists, measure up in their judgment of imperial slaughter? It just depended on the novelists. Like, that situation is really interesting because it was 
a labor and land issue. They were protesting their rights to the land. So when that news finally reached England, there's a huge part of England which is also protesting its right to the land. Working class England recognized that battle. So there was a lot of support. But there were also a lot of people like Dickens who, though they would support such labor movements in England, could not support them in Jamaica. For him, that was a place of chaos. It was a place of annoyance. He didn't want to think about it. His first concern was with working class workers in England. He thought it was a distraction from that argument. And he didn't fundamentally believe these people were civilized or citizens in the way that he thought the working class white people in England were. But there were many other writers who saw the connection much more politically and saw the analogy faster. So it was one of the places where Dickens failed entirely. It's Hmm. a shame. It's strange, too, because when he went to America and went south, he was immediately repulsed by American slavery. It was the first time he'd seen it with his eyes and then refused to read below the Mason-Dixon line ever again. But that is an example of Dickens. He was a sentimental man. He had to see things with his own eyes. He had Hmm. to see the suffering barefoot child before he understood what was going on. And a politics that relies on, you know, you don't feel anything about, I don't know, the Ukrainian war until you see a child's body in the street. That, to me, is not a very effective politics. Yeah, let's talk about that. I should say, though, getting ready for you, I read Dickens' Great Expectations again this summer. And I got to say, I was overcome. He's a wonderful writer. He's one of my favorite writers. Unbelievable. But it's possible to to love him for those books and for his, by the way, incredible vision. I mean, most people at that time were not seeing the sufferings of the working class in England. He saw them. And not only that, he transformed them. He changed labor law. He changed copyright law. He's a hero. But the limits of his sight were such that we all have these blind spots, these complete limits. There is an almost separate novel inside your book, The Fraud, about the Bogle family, sometimes slaves in Jamaica, Andrew Bogle becomes a key figure because he stands resolutely by his conviction that this fraudulent claimant to the Tickborn estate was the real thing. I'm not sure quite why he decided that. But then Andrew's fine and fierce son, Henry, he's a teenager when we meet him, has a climactic role in your novel as it draws to a close. It's hard to summarize, but very briefly, the talk that Eliza... Touche hears in London in the 1860s, including from her, her cousin. The line is that, Eliza, in this country we have abolished the slave trade, the practice, the business itself. Our debt to the African is surely paid in full. The answer comes a little later from this fine, fierce Henry character who says, no way, my father is a patient man, Mrs. Touche, I am not. He says, what young men hunger for today is not improvement or charity or any of the watchwords of your ladies' societies. They hunger for truth, for truth itself, for justice. Right. And Eliza's novel idea is sort of born in that moment. She ends up calling it the fraud, but she's determined to, to take that caution seriously. It's almost extraordinary when you look back at these like well-meaning attempts at what they called then amelioration you know, the enslaved people should have slightly better dwellings, they should have better food, they should be less abused. And for Henry, of course, this is, you know, this kind of gradualism in hell, you know, it's an absurdity. But people seriously had these discussions. 
I mean, and Miss Touche is part of that gradualist movement, even though she doesn't think she is. Right. Um, so it's an argument about time, whether people are free in themselves, radically existentially free, which Henry believes, which I believe, which is the truth. But Mrs. Touche is also aware that in practical terms on this earth, political processes take time. And how do we take those two facts in our minds at the same time? That these people were never slaves. That's a ridiculous word. No one is a slave. They're enslaved, but they're not unfree. All humans are free. But at the same time, the political process to remove them from their situation takes time. Yeah. The gravest fraud in the Jamaica piece of this new book was the so-called humane plan of working the Hope Plantation. Right. The machinery that ate people's limbs, furnace heat in the boiling house, pitiless suffering. It's just incredible. And one character who finally says, the secret engine of the world is a treadmill wet with blood. And she declares solemnly, there will be a reckoning. I think it's two things I was thinking of. One is that sometimes when we're thinking about ethics and people's bad behavior, we forget that people we consider uniformly evil also have moral vanity. So if you're in a prison, the robber thinks he's a greater man than the pedophile and the murderer. In fact, everybody thinks they're a greater man than the pedophile. And these vanities of sin exist everywhere. And it was the same on a plantation. It was perfectly possible for one plantation owner to think that he was you know, a moderate and decent man compared to the guy in the next parish. These things seem absurd to us, but they are a psychological fact of human nature. Um, and when I was looking into the Hope Plantation, it seemed to me everywhere, people flattering themselves with a slightly higher moral regard than the person next to them, which is kind of grotesque and funny and pathetic, but human. It's just so recognizable. May I ask, how did you research the Hope Plantation? Um, well, I was really helped by University College London has this extraordinary digitized account of every single plantation in Jamaica down to, you know, what's eaten. They they know everything, the name of every person, every child that dies, everybody who's sick and for how long they're sick. And so every name, everything, really. And then beyond the raw data, there, there's been a series of really fantastic Caribbean academics, one of whom I mentioned in the book, who study these places, both as, you know, the history of land, the history of money, the history of forced labor. Um, so there's there's no shortage of information. So all I really had to do was arrange it. It was already there. Mm. But then thinking about the treadmill at the bottom of the world, I guess I do, sometimes I have that. That's my bleakest thought, that no matter what um, actions we try and perform, no matter how we try and establish more just systems for people underneath our just systems is another world. I mean, I've seen it myself. When the first time I went to Liberia and saw a country that has been reduced to a tire factory for Americans, you know, it's unbelievable what goes on underneath our lives. Yeah, that's one of two questions I wanted to ask. First of all, does any English writer leap out the sort of saving remnant that spoke the truth about the Sepoy Mutiny in India, for example, 1867, and that told it in a way that wouldn't embarrass us today. It's not that they didn't know it. I think the key, which I've always thought since I started writing, and it's, it's so hard to actually create in the minds of people who have been at the center of a culture for so long, a real hierarchical reversal. They can do it kind of, 
they can kind of imagine revenge politics and all the rest of it. But there's some part of the European imagination really fundamentally believes that Africa is somehow backward in time, that it needed time to develop, that the arrow of justice points towards this particular form of civilization. Those ideas are so deep in our bones that they're incredibly hard to unpick. It is incredibly hard to really understand that, for instance, a Nigerian society in 1450 is a fully developed for its place, for its time and for its people society. Hmm. That is something that I think it's really hard to get into people's minds. And so to expect British writers in the 18th century to really conceive that the rights of a black man are not secondary, should not come later, but are absolutely equal to their own. No, I think that's an almost impossible uh, mind state to find. Yeah, no, it's incredible. Uh, James Mill wrote The Definitive History of India, never met an Indian person, never went to India, um, didn't speak the language. (laughs) They called it the Sepoy Mutiny. I mean, as if these hirelings by the British Army, Indians, uh, were ungrateful for the language of Shakespeare and Milton and all that kind of nonsense. But anyway, how to compare it to the American understanding of U.S. empire in the 21st century, including the tire works in Liberia. I think we really have to challenge ourselves. Like it's, I'm talking about myself. I'm challenging. I grew up in the West. I grew up with this consciousness of believing, at least in some sense, in progress. I think particularly young people are asking now is, is it civilized to create a society which is eating itself? Is that civilized? Is it civilized to have created so much plastic that the world is in danger of actually ending. Would we define that as a civilized culture? Mm. And that's the hardest part to take, I think, because some part of us really does believe we were futuristic, we were ahead, but self-immolation is not progress. (laughs) The shortest chapter in your book, it's only six sentences. I want to read it because all sorts of reviewers have pointed to it. And I wonder how you'd apply it to the United States. Um, Eliza Touche had a theory. England was not a real place at all. England was an elaborate alibi. Nothing real happened in England, only dinner parties and boarding schools and bankruptcies. Everything else, everything the English really did and really wanted, everything they desired and took and used and discarded, all of that they did elsewhere. What's the American analogy? It's different. It's not, it's, I mean, though you have waged war all around the world, it's almost impossible to explain the American situation that you you have a, a moment of the most sublime declaration of human rights that also simultaneously declares an inner part of the nation as three-fourths of a human being. Hypocrisy is so deep in the American story that it's, I mean, it's not really, it's not pickable. The establishment of a permanent underclass in America is what it was founded on. Not to mention theft of the land, yeah. too. Yeah, which comes first. And that, that, of course, is true in Jamaica, too, that it's important for black Jamaicans like me to remember that, that we're not native to Jamaica. That honor went to the Taino Indians, not one of whom survives. They were massacred. Mm. Um, the end of this book reads to me, Zadie Smith, like a rallying cry to the writers. Get real. The truth is the important thing, almost more than restitution, to tell the truth and to say it. Who's the writer we're looking for? What kind of writer? 
Not one writer, many, 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 many writers. To me, they don't, it's not that they have a political responsibility, but they might in this moment have an opportunity. Like everybody's consciousness is, you know, captured. There's like a colonial <laughs> land grab by Palo Alto of, of our actual minds. So to me, mm. the way I conceive of my responsibility is just, just to think, just to think independently. It almost doesn't matter what I think about. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't have to be anything. It just has to be free of that because there just needs to be some corner of our lives that is free of that and, and to encourage other people to be free of that. It's a joy to hear you saying that and it's a joy to read you enacting that. I mean, it's hard to describe this book, The Fraud, but it's everywhere all the time, keeps moving. It's Zadie Smith's, not her stream of consciousness, but it's the restlessness of her curiosity, a kind of fearlessness, boldness that that saves the day, I think. Sometimes I, when I'm talking to younger people, they say, well, it's your privilege not to be on your phone day and night. And, and I'm sure that is the case. But I still recommend it for an hour or two hours. Just wake up in the morning. Just try, just try walking around for like three or four hours in your day without, if you can, on a Saturday mm. when there's no work. Or if you have any kind of break or half an hour. It really doesn't matter what it is, but it you need to remember that you have a space of your own because that in that space we're going to be able to do something together like collectively independently are you telling them to be writers too or you know writing is like the least of what i do i think really, really? i mean I, I like writing but reading is is the biggest thing for me and just resisting just try resisting a little bit like actually resisting the influences that are coming at you day and night that seems to me really important right now. And of course they ask you, where do I start? Do I start with the Victorian novelists? Do they still have something for- It doesn't for... matter. Like right now I'm reading the most random book I pulled off my shelf, Trollope. I don't think I've ever read Trollope. Oh. A little tiny book called The Warden. And oh, it turns I love out- that. The cellist. It's, yeah, it's so great. It's and it brilliant. turns out to be a tiny little book about who owns the land, what's right, who gets to- take this land who gets to take profit when profit grows what is a landlord all these like incredibly important questions for right now and uh, and i i just picked it randomly off the shelf and it's giving me all these ideas of you know what do we owe to people who've lived on land for a long time things like this like i couldn't if i just taken my marching orders from elon musk this morning as to what i meant to be thinking about today <laughs> I, I wouldn't have these thoughts so that's what i that's what I want for people. I used to know that book very well. I've given it to a number of cellists that I know. It's a sort of great hymn to uh, the cello and the pleasures yeah, of... Yeah, the warden uh, plays the cello. Get yeah. up in the corner and just play that cello, play something good. It's fantastic, but it has at the center of it a genuine ethical dilemma, like a political and ethical dilemma that I can't... I don't know what the right thing is to do, and I don't think I've read a book in so long in which I think... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the warden doesn't know, and I don't know. I don't know what's right in this case. So it, it's real work. It's interesting. Yeah, give us a hint, though. Where? What are the directions? You must coach your kids in this in this fashion. Oh no, my, I'm you know your kids. Your kids have. You're, I'm the last person my kids want to hear about in any <laughs> in any department. My God, no, I have absolutely no. Uh, advice. No, but when you say you're really puzzled as to what is the right thing to be doing now? 
I think just pick a thing. Like maybe if I was 20 and I didn't have kids and I had some time, I might just go on a, just enough of these plastic bottles. Just like, let's just stop that existing. Like no more of them anywhere for anyone at all. Just if one kid could make that happen, that would be huge. Pick a thing and pursue it all the way down. Interesting. I think make some music if you possibly can. Oh, yeah, for your soul, of course. But if you're energized by the need to change the world, then, yeah. then pick a thing. It doesn't have to be big. One question about writers and their work, I, I just feel compelled to ask you, and that is, years ago, you had met John Updike and you said, marvelous to me, you felt you were meeting Shakespeare. I felt I was... I was meeting a graphomaniac, <laughs> so I recognise that in him, and it's and it's true of Shakespeare too, and certainly true of Dickens. I hope it's not going to be true of me, but yeah, he's um, he was one of those guys. But what part of the judgment stands up, or maybe all of it does? John was somebody who couldn't help but write. I mean, yeah. he's a writer all the way down, and I guess I don't. I always admire and I'm interested in those people, but I guess I don't want to be one of them. That's the best way I could put it. Except you already are. are. Are you not? I mean, you remind me of him in the sense that you, you're prolific in fiction, but you also write right. criticism, not quite as much as he did, but you also write marvelous essays on all sorts of things. Yeah. Is that graphomania? I just, I, I don't know, man. I, I feel like I have so many other things going on, principally my family, and that takes up so much of my time. But I guess when I write, I write maybe fluidly, and he had that too, I guess. Once I start, it doesn't take me so long to write something. Last question, Zadie Smith. What does the critic Michael Gora mean when he says that this novel, The Fraud, was written by a novelist in transition? Funny that he should say that. To me, it felt like a, a sum of everything that I love and am interested in, and I was so satisfied. So he might be right, I might be, but I also felt <laughs> like I might be done, like I was so satisfied with, with what I'd done. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't know. To me, every one of the books is a transition. They always seem quite different from each other. So I'm interested to see what happens next. We'll see. You can't be done because we, we, we need a lot more of you. But thank you for this book and thank you for all of it. Thank you for the pleasure you take in oh, doing it. Oh, thank you. Um, I do enjoy it. I've realized that recently. <laughs> <laughs> Sadie Smith, thank you. Many more realizations to come, I'm thank sure. Thank you. Bye, Chris. It was lovely to talk to you again. Zadie Smith's new novel, her sixth, is titled The Fraud. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts. This week, check out Patrick Cox's show, Subtitle. It's all about languages and the people who speak them. Until they don't, Patrick went to the Republic of Georgia to hear Udi, the poster child for endangered languages. Hear it at subtitlepod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear all the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org.